invite you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 20. And uh, we started chapter 20 last week, and <clears throat> you'll remember, we looked into one of the most controversial subjects of all of Christianity today. And I told you last week, and I'll tell you again today, it never ceases to amaze me why this subject is so controversial. Uh, it just absolutely blows my mind that God's people are so far from the truth of the Word of God today. And, of course, we talked about the consumption of alcohol out of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Social drinking for the child of God. And, you know, we laid it out from the Bible as clearly probably as it ever could be laid out. And uh, I did that for a couple of reasons. For, for First and foremost was for, for you that when you begin to deal with somebody, because you know as well as I do, this comes up all the time when you start dealing with, especially with young singles. You know, they live in a world where, uh, you know, the Christian world and the world itself, they, uh, you know, they just see nothing wrong with it. And it spread itself over into Christianity. And so now uh, you'll have the biblical position on it that simply really cannot be argued against. There's nothing to say about it. I mean, when you're done laying it out from the Bible, all you got to do is just simply say, you know what, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is what many of God's people do today. And it, all we did was, really, is use the Bible. And uh, I know that uh, sounds like a, a simple thing to say, but uh, that's all we did, to define what the Scriptures say about the subject. And it was very clear, very concise, and, you know, very plain. And uh, now we totally understand uh, that it's not about uh, how little or how much you drink. You know, we talked about the, the uh, mindset today of being a user, abuser, or a full-blown alcoholic. But rather it deals with defining two wines in the Bible, two cups in the Bible, two vines in the Bible. And uh, one will be the cup of devils, which uh, is always connected with serpents, dragons, it's bitter, it's stinging like an adder, and it's got the curse of God on it. Or the other one will be the cup of Christ's blood, which is the pure blood of the grape, unleavened, which has the blessings of God in it. And, uh, and, uh, and for you and for me, the question is simply, you know, how much of the devil are you going to allow into your life now that, uh, now that you know what the Bible says? I told you last week how God, when you got saved, the Bible says God made us a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. And the things that are new now are you got a new birth, you got a new heart, you got a new song in that heart, Psalms chapter 40. Uh, you got a new spirit, Holy Spirit of God. You got a new nature, Romans chapter 7. You got a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. Uh, we got new Jerusalem. We got new heavens and a new earth. And so God gave us a new wine uh, versus the old wine. And uh, I said last week that at salvation, what God simply did was get the devil completely out of your life and put the Holy Spirit of God in. Why, for the life of me, the God's people who finally get the devil out, who's caused them all their problems, want to invite him back in in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but uh, that's what we have. And then I, I put the issue to John chapter 2 at rest. John chapter 2 is the great idiot chapter for most of the people who think that Jesus actually... Uh, turned the water to fermented wine and then gave it to uh, people to drink. And, of course, we dealt with that last week. We now know that it was new wine, that it was grape juice. And uh, the absurdity of that, uh, based on Habakkuk chapter 2, that that could have never happened the way that people think it is today. So we laid that out and got a lot of good things, and now you're set with that. 
and uh, you're ready to go and you have the material. If you follow through with it, you can get some things done with it. Now today I want to I wanna read our next set of verses and I want to look at the passage from, first of all, a doctrinal uh, standpoint and then we'll look at some practical things in it. Uh, as I told you many times, and you will know this for sure by now, uh, uh, the book of Proverbs will be about two men. It's about a wise man and a foolish man. We know that the Bible has three applications. This is nothing new. It's just kind of like refresher here as we get into this. The Bible will have a doctrinal application, and the uh, man doctrinally will be the nation of Israel, corporately as God's son. We know the Bible has a historical application, and historically the uh, man here will be uh, Solomon's own son. And then we know that inspirationally that it's a picture of you and me. And the wise man will hear and he'll take the instructions from the Lord. That's all the book of Proverbs is about. First eight chapters, the first seven chapters are about how important it is for you and I to hear and take that instructions. And then from eight up to verse thir- uh, chapter 30, he gives you the instructions. And of course, a fool, he won't do it. He'll never take those things. So I want to read today in Proverbs chapter 20. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 2 and come down to verse 5. And then uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at it from there. It says this, The fear of a king is as a roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore uh, shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Let's go to the Lord this morning and ask God's blessing. Will, would you ask God's blessing on us service this morning? Lord, I thank you and praise you for everything you've given us and ask you to use your name today, Lord, to speak through us and open our hearts so that we can hear, Lord, from you, Father. And uh, also let us apply it to our lives, Lord. All these things we ask in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Now, I want to look at verse 2, and then I want to come back and tie verse 2 into verse 1, which we preached on last week, and I want to show you how verse 1 and 2 go together doctrinally. Sam, are you preaching here this morning, or um, is it, did I miss something here? You look awful good, son. <laughs> Rule number one in this church, don't ever dress better than the preacher does. You look really good, man. I'll tell you what. Is there, I'm, I'm just none of my business. Is there a reason for this? Did you just feel like getting dressed up this morning? You look great, man. You look great. You look great. I, I always envy guys who look good when they dress up. You know, I, I've seen guys that, uh, uh, they know, they go all day long and they wear a suit at work. And, uh, you know, after eight, ten hours at work, they'll come out home and they'll look like they just stepped out of a parade. They're immaculate. I wear a suit for an hour and a half, looks like the parade stepped all over me. I mean, I just, you know, I've always, always envied that. Maybe someday I'll get there. Who knows? Probably not. But anyway. But I want to look at verse 2 first, and then I want to come back, and I want to show you how verse 1 and 2. Now, last week we looked at from a practical application, and we dealt with all the boozing Christians out there. Uh, I want to show you now doctrinally how it fits into Proverbs uh, from a doctrinal standpoint. So we got to look at verse 2 first. Verse 2 says, The fear of a king is as a roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. Now, when we look at this doctrinally, you want to remember that doctrinally this will be a reference to the tribulation period and in particular the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, if you look back in here on our, 
on our on our chart. Oh, we took that one down. We, we had a one that had the uh, monarch of the books. It had the lion trampling all over the other versions of the Bible. Uh, that uh, that lion is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the he's the King of Beasts. And that's you know I don't know if you know that you know a lot of things that the world talks about. It comes out of the Bible. Proverbs chapter thirty verse thirty. Uh, likens the, the lion, Christ, as the, uh, the king of all beasts on the planet. So that's where it kind of comes from, uh, if you uh, are interested in that. But uh, it's a thing where uh, a lot of that stuff comes from the Bible. And the references here is Christ being provoked by the Antichrist and his crowd, uh, and then coming back and destroying them as a lion. And you'll find it all through the Bible, especially in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13 says, The slothful man said. Now, remember, we've read a lot about in Proverbs the slothful man. And I'm always talking about how the slothful man is somebody that's lazy, somebody that doesn't do what they're supposed to do, and we make the practical application. But the slothful man doctrinally will be somebody connected with the Antichrist in the tribulation period. So when you find it that way. So he says in Proverbs 22, 13, The slothful man saith, There's a lion without. I shall be slain in the street. Over there in Proverbs 26, 13, it says, The slothful man saith, slothful man again, see, uh, there is a lion in the way, a lion in the streets. Uh, Proverbs 28, 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And of course, that's a reference to uh, the second coming of Christ and the people that come back with him. Proverbs 30, 30, what I already talked about. A lion which is strongest among beasts and turneth not away from any. And uh, so there's where the idea that the lion is the king of beasts comes from. comes out of your Bible there. And then in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7, here comes the Lord back at the second coming of Christ when all of his fervor. He says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. That's a reference to the second coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, as Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2, the fear of a king is as a roaring lion. That's him coming back. And, uh, and we've talked a lot about this, and you need to see this. How we've talked a lot about being deceived lately. And I've made a reference to how that uh, most Christians in the Laodicean church period have definitely been deceived. And the devil uses deception as the number one thing that he does. But there's a thing that he does to pull off that deception, and I want you to understand this too. And, uh, uh, but he works through deception. He wants to deceive us. Jesus was telling everybody all the time, be not deceived. Uh, you know, uh, uh, life has consequences with it. Most people don't believe that. The choices we make have consequences with it. Most people are oblivious to that. Yet the Bible says, Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, but every man soweth that will he also reap. You see, there's consequences, and we deceive ourselves in thinking that there's not. And that's the devil. The devil will deceive Christians in thinking that the, uh, the, uh, uh, all the things that they can do because of what the Christian world says today that are outside the Bible are okay. And, of course, uh, we know that they're not. And, of course, the only way that you and I can keep from being deceived is to have the principles of the Word of God. You see, the Bible never changes. It never changes. That's why I tell you, and I know most of you young kids, anyhow, you, you weren't, haven't been around that long. You don't know that uh, uh, what we believe today 
even though we get ridiculed for it, even though the scholarly of the world and 99.999% of the pastors and the teachers don't, uh, and the preachers don't believe it today, doesn't change the fact that what you and I believe in this church has been the standard belief system for the body of Christ for the last 15, 16, 1700 years. But they're oblivious to it. You know why? They've been deceived. And you know how they got deceived? The devil can only deceive you when he takes your standard of truth from you. There is no other truth on this planet outside the Word of God that God gave you. And uh, uh, the Bible never changes. The devil will change what he does, and he'll get you out of the Bible to get you in a place where you're easily deceived because you've lost your standard of truth. Thursday night, wow, what a great time Thursday night was when we talked, uh, the lady called in and I gave you the verse in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8, and Caleb used that yesterday again. Caleb, I want to say, uh, in our singles ministry, that was one of the finest pieces of theology that I've ever heard anybody ever lay out. You really did a good job. And it, here again, and I know nobody believes this. I know you don't, and I know you don't, but I'm telling you. What he gave yesterday, I bet you there isn't 10 preachers in this city could lay it out as cleanly and as clearly and as biblically as you did yesterday, and there was some depth to that. That wasn't the four spiritual laws and what Jesus means in my heart. There was some depth to that. It was well thought out. It was well laid out. And you're just, a, you know, you're just like I said Thursday night. So many of you kids uh, get up there and do that. And the gals, man, the gals are just as good as the guys. I mean, it's a shame that you can't preach. I mean, because you can really put it to them, I'm telling you. You do your own brand of preaching anyhow. Proverbs 20, 18. Every purpose is established by counsel and with good advice, make war. We talked about that Thursday night, how that uh, you ought to have a principle behind everything that you do in your life. Everything that you do. If every child of God would do that, you would be problem-free in your life. Uh, you would never have any issues that you caused by your own stupidity. You know why? Because you would make war with good advice, and you'd have a principle and good counsel behind whatever purpose you decide to do in life. It's just that simple. But the devil knows that he will deceive you once he gets you out of the Bible. Once you start living your life without God's counsel, without start, you start taking good advice for the warfare of the believer, he's going to deceive you. And he does this through counterfeiting. He does this through imitation. And uh, most people, uh, you know, they, they don't understand that. Job chapter 41 uh, uh, is probably, the uh, verse uh, uh, 12 and 13 are probably two of the greatest, most telling verses about the devil uh, in the Bible. And uh, Job, I've told you many, many times, Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 are, in the Old Testament, the two greatest chapters on the devil. Revelation chapter 12 and 13, <laughs> easy here now, are, are the two greatest chapters uh, in the New Testament on the devil. You put those four chapters together, you got something. And yet, I'm going to tell you this. You go back to Job chapter 40, 41, the greatest two chapters that reveal more about the devil than anything that you will find under the context of one chapter, he's behemoth, the other chapter, he's Leviathan. And yet, if you look in your center column references of your Bible, even your Oxford Bible, if you look in the center column references by the great scholarly minds that looked at Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, the very guys who taught the guys that are teaching the Bible wrong today, uh, they would tell you that in Job chapter 40 and 41 that it's not the devil, that it's a leviathan is an elephant or he's a crocodile or he's some other kind of animal out there, clearly misses the whole thing. You know why they do that? Because the devil deceived them. The devil doesn't want you figuring out anything about him because in Job chapter 41 verses 12 and 13, the Bible talks about how he changes. 
You see, the Bible never changes, but the Bible says who can discover the face of his garments. The devil will change down through history. The Bible won't. And when you have the Bible as your counsel, you know it never changes. When the world changes, Christianity changes, or anything changes, you're never deceived by it because you have the absolute standard of truth, the rock, the anchor that holds you on point. And he says there in verse 13 that God will not, he will not, uh, he will not hide his, his parts, his power, nor his comely proportion. Three things about the devil that God wants to reveal about him. And of course, the parts would be the men that he has used down through history. The power would be the nations that he used down through history. And the comely proportion would be the religions that he used down through nature. The Bible says that God's going to lay that out. And when God, when the devil gets you out of the book, gets you out of the council, then he can counterfeit everything that God does. He can become an imitator of everything that God does. And God's people can't discern him. You know why? Because you lost the standard of truth. Once you lose your Bible, once you lose the absolute rock of your salvation, the Word of God, which defines everything that God wants you to know, you're going to be deceived. Just that simple. I know a lot of God's people that have the book still get deceived. But he's an imitator. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, talked about the devil being transformed into an angel of light. We always think the devil hangs out down at Westport, down in, uh, uh, that's where some of his people hang out, but he ain't down there. Uh, he, he hangs out in the churches. He hangs out in the religious circles. The Bible says he loves the synagogue seats and high places. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh of God, but against principalities of powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. He's a religionist. And the Bible says that he's transformed into an angel of light. And it says it's no marvel that his, his minister, he's got ministers. He's got ministers. And they're transformed into ministers of righteousness. And they're not. They're out of the pit of hell. So for the purpose of deceiving you, and this is how the Bible lays him out. Uh, you know, the Bible says, for instance, that God is light, John chapter 8, verse 12. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible says the devil's light. He imitates it, see? The Bible says Christ is king in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. But over in Job chapter 41, verse 24, the devil imitates that and it says he's king of the children of pride. The Bible says Christ is God in John chapter 20, verse 28. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the devil says, the Bible says that the devil's also God. He imitates it. And everything that Christ is, the devil is going to imitate it. And when you lose the book, he deceives you that you can't tell the real Christ from the wrong Christ. And there's two Christs in the Bible. You should know that by now. You're going to find that Christ quotes the Bible. You're going to find John, Genesis chapter 3, so does the devil. Everything that Christ does, he imitates. When he came up to destroy the plan of man and take Eve into the world and destroy Adam and the whole plan of God, he didn't, he didn't take her out to a wild party someplace on the beach. He didn't take her out to someplace and, and uh, there was a wild, sinful place. The first words out of his mouth as he opened up and he quoted the Bible, he just quoted it wrong. He's an imitator. Christ has a shitty that's a bride, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 17, so does the devil. I mean, it's just that simple. Christ has a cup, Matthew chapter 26, that holds new wine. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the devil's got a cup, holds the wrong wine. It's just that simple. Uh, Christ uh, is called a, a roaring lion in Revelation chapter 5, 5, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, the devil, your adversary, goeth about as a roaring lion, so he may devour. 
He imitates him in every way possible. He counterfeits him in everything that he does for the purpose of deceiving. And I've said it before. I've said it before. If while we were here, if the Lord Jesus Christ walked in that door and came around this side and stood here, and the devil, no, the Lord would be on this side, and the devil would come in and he'd be on this side, and they'd stand side by side, you could not tell them apart. I know right now you think that the devil would look grotesque. That's because you've been deceived. I know you think that he'd have a red union suit on with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. That's because you've been deceived. If the Jesus Christ stood on this side and the devil himself stood on this side, you would not be able to tell them apart. Now, don't tell me you'd snow by the scars in your hand. Why, come on, man. Those Catholic statues down in Mexico and South America, those Roman Catholic statues, they bleed every Easter. No, there's only one way you'd tell them apart. Only one way you'd tell them apart. You couldn't tell them by the way that they looked, by the way that they, by what they talked. You'd know one thing that would set them apart. That's the word that came out of their mouth. The words themselves. One would walk in this side with a King James Bible. The other would walk in this side with an NIV. I just said that to irritate some of you. <laughs> it would be the word that comes out of their mouth. God never violates his own principles. Once he shuts a principle down, it stays. It never changes. The devil violates his all the time. There was a time when the King James Bible was the hall in the mail Bible of the whole world. Now it's not. There was a time when marriage was a man and a woman. Now it's not. There was a time when gays uh, were looked at for what it was out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now they're not. There was a time when uh, that all the things of the world was wrong uh, versus Christianity. Now that it's not. There was a time when drinking and all that stuff was clearly laid out in the Bible. Now it's not. The devil changed it. The Word of God held true to it. It's that simple. It's not hard. Not hard at all. But once you lose your Bible, you, you lose your, your source of truth. Now, the last part of that verse, verse 2 says, uh, Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. Now, that'll be a reference, again, to God's coming judgment at the second coming of Christ. You'll want some Old Testament references for this. I'll just give them to you. I won't read them to you. Go back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Go back to the whole chapter of Joel chapter 2. Go back to Isaiah chapter 63. Uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3, where the, diamonds, the garments are dyed like garments from Boaz in red blood. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14, and now there are 200 other places in the Old Testament. That's what that's dealing with. Now, with that context established, that we know that verse 2 now is dealing with the second coming of Christ. Now let's go back, doctrinally put verse 1 that we preached on last week. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived, thereby is not wise. Now, let's put that back into the context doctrinally. We preached on it from a practical. I separated the verse out and just let you have it last week, showing you the inspirational application. Now, I'm going to go back, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to put it with verse 2, 3, 4, and I'm going to show you how it goes in a context. Now, doctrinally, the wine of verse 1, that is strong drink and a mockery and, and raging, and uh, that will deceive you, uh, the wine of Deuteronomy chapter 32, we talked about last week. This wine and strong drink will, that is what the devil will use to deceive man, uh, and this will be the wine of the devil's cup out of Deuteronomy chapter 32. That is the filth of the devil's, uh, devil's, devil's wine. And uh, by which, in this case, the nations drink of, not just the individuals. 
In an inspirational application, it's the people on Friday and Saturday night getting boozed up. In a doctrinal application, I'm going to show you here in a moment, it's the nations who are following under the spell of the devil by being drunk with the wine of his fornication. And that's what he's talking about. The wine of his church, which is a cup. And uh, like we talked about last week. Now, I want to read two chapters for you. Uh, one out of the book of Revelation. Let's go there first. Revelation chapter 17. And uh, then we'll go to Isaiah chapter 28. But let's go to Revelation 17 first. Now, Revelation chapter 17 will be about the devil's bride, the devil's church. 17 and 18. And here's what it says. I'm going to read the first six verses. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now this whore will be Babylon mystery religion. This will be the Roman Catholic Church in the, in the, in the tribulation period. Uh, stay with me here. Now here it comes. Look at verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now you see that? Now that's the doctrinal application of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. The inspirational application is you and me. The doctrinal application is the nations and the kings that get seduced and gets drunken with the wine of her fornication, spiritual fornication, and then they get deceived. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman set upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads uh, and ten horns. Uh, and the woman was arrayed in purple uh, and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now here's the devil's cup. Here's the devil's cup. Now, this cup is filled with the wine out of Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is like a serpent, a dragon, it biteth like an adder. And this is the cup, this is the cup that is filled with the wine of the filthiness of her fornication. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but the, as I said earlier, this is talking about the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the tribulation period. It is the Antichrist Church. We've covered that many, many times. But I want you to know, if you don't know that, that the official seal of the Roman Catholic Church is a golden cup. That is their official seal. And when uh, they take their communion, uh, they, uh, they drink out of that golden cup. And of course, uh, it's, got, it's got the devil's wine in it. They don't use grape juice. They don't. He says in verse 5, And upon her head was a name written, Babylon, uh, mis- excuse me, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. She's drunk. She's drunk. She got deceived by the wine of the fornication, and now she's drunk and it's led her to the murdering of God's people. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And of course, this is the, this is the, this is the, what he's talking about in Proverbs chapter one, that the nations of the world Get deceived. Look at Isaiah 28, verses 1 through 8. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which is a tempest of hail and a destroying storm and a flood of many waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth 
uh, with the hand. Now that's the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ, the mighty one. The crown pride, uh, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot. And the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower as the hasty fruit before the summer, uh, which when he that looketh upon it seeth while he yet eateth it up. In that day, second coming, shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people, remnant of the nation of Israel. And for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment and for strength to them that turneth the battle to gate. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink. Out of the way, the priest and the prophet have erred uh, through uh, swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way of thou strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness, and there is no place clean. Now that is the picture of the nations right before, but in particular during the tribulation period. They become drunk with the wine and the fornication and the strong drink of the devil's church. And of course, she's a seducing power, uh, Proverbs chapter 7. And she's intoxicating like a beautiful woman can be. And she deceives them. And uh, the nations have been deceived by it. Now the doctrinal application here, will, as I said, will be the devil's cup in the form of, of the wine of the Roman Catholic Church and the spiritual fornication that comes along with it that, that dupes the nations and deceives them. Now, let me just come back for a moment. This is why the world is out of control today. You ever see a drunk? I mean a real drunk. A real drunk, ever been a real drunk? A real drunk is out of control. They stagger, they fall down, they sway back and forth, they throw up a lot, they, they, they lose all sense of judgment, they talk about things that they shouldn't talk about. Uh, they're just they're out of their minds. They're completely out of control. That's what a drunk is when he's intoxicated. That's what's wrong with the world today. That's why the world is out of control. The world is drunk and intoxicated with a devil's cup. And she's out of control. She's lost her sense of morality. She's lost her sense of understanding. She's lost her sense of purpose. She's lost her sense of God. She's lost her sense of everything. Why? She's drunk. And like a, it's what's wrong with America. That's why America is so messed up the way she is. America's drunk. America is like a drunk that staggers along, has lost its judgment, cannot speak well, has lost its concept of God, has lost its concept of morality, have lost, they're drunk. And it goes back to the wine. And when you watch a drunk stagger down the street and, and fall against and lean against the poles and fall down and get up and, and, and can't keep, you kind of talk to him, he doesn't make any sense, he talks about stuff that doesn't even relative, you're looking at a picture of America. Because America's drunk. A drunk makes no sense, America makes no sense. Now this is a great answer why you scratch your head sometimes and say, how did that happen in America? It happens with every drunk. Every drunk loses his concept of truth and reality. How does it happen to America? Same way it happens to a guy down at the City Union Mission. They, they lose their mind because of the intoxication of the alcohol. And the world has come under the intoxicating effect of the Roman Catholic Church, and we have been drinking of her cup for how many years now? And now this nation, this world is drunk, and it's only going to get worse. And when the devil comes down in the tribulation period, he picks up all these nations that he's setting up right now. They're going to be right ready for him. They've already been with him. They've already been drinking out of his cup. They're going to have a great time right up to the point till the roaring lion comes back. And he's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. Now that's how it works. Not hard. Now look at verse 3. 
Now we'll get something here that's a little more practical. It is an honor uh, for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. Now this is one of the great practical principles that's found in the Bible. This is something for uh, all of us here. I don't learn this one. And uh, it's very simple. A spirit-filled child of God, a mature Christian, one who has the Word of God in his life and is where God wants him to be, uh, they will become a problem solver, not a problem causer. It's just that simple. I don't think in all my years in ministry I've ever had a problem with anybody who was up to their shoulders in ministry with me doing the work of God. It's always the peripheral people. I, I don't think in 40-some years of my ministry has anybody ever given me a problem that was dialed in uh, and, and in the work and doing the work that uh, on the level that uh, it needs to be done. I mean, you always have some who go halfway or whatever. I'm talking about those who have bought the whole enchilada. And you're into it up to your eyeballs. I don't think in all of my years in ministry I've ever had anybody cause a problem uh, along those lines in, in anything. And uh, it's because that they understand and this work means something to them. See, some of you are here, and I love you, and I want you to come forever, but some of you are here for the wrong reason this morning. You do know that. Some of you are here because you're checking out that gal sitting in front of you or behind you. I already got you looking at you, man. I got you. <laughs> some of you are here because of the fact that you want to learn the Bible. You want to learn the Bible, but you don't want to give anything back. You'll come to the place where you'll come here and get the Bible all you want, but you'll never lift one finger to get into the ministry. You're here for the wrong reason. No, I, I, I'll teach you the Bible, and I don't really care, because someplace along the line, maybe, you know, you'll, you'll put it together. But the end of the day is, God didn't save you just so you could study the Bible. Amen. God saved you to learn the Bible, and then you could do something with it. But in any church, you've got people who come for the wrong reason. And, I, and I'm not saying you're not welcome. Certainly you are, and I want you to come. And I'm not saying it because I'm trying to deter you from being here. I'm saying because it's the truth. In any church, doesn't matter where it is, you're going to get people come for various reasons. And many times, it's the wrong reason. Because the only reason you should be here is to perfect yourself for the ministry. That's the only reason. It's what God saved you for. He didn't save you for any other reason. He gave you the Word of God for the perfecting of the ministry. He gave you the Word of God that you might be everything that God wants you to be. That you balance out your life and you get everything where it needs to be. Uh, but in the process of that, you see the value of what we're doing. You actually buy into what I'm doing here. You actually realize that, that this is of God and God is doing something here. And now that you are of God yourself, you naturally should be want to be a part of that. And you realize that it's going to cost you something to do that. It costs me something to have this. It'll cost you something to be whatever God wants you to do. The question is, not are you saved this morning. Most of you probably are. The question is, have you counted the cost and will you pay that cost? See, that's the question. And when you get to that point that something means something to you, you want to protect it. I watch you mothers and your dad too with your kids. I'll just use Jamie as an example because she's the best example I know of of, of, of how paranoid a mother can be. <laughs> and I get it. I remember with the first time, she never let those kids go with anybody else, any of parents at school and everything. And I never forget the first time they had something at school when she let them drive with another parent. And I, you know, and I, and I knew that the kids would be okay because Jamie was two cars behind her all night long just following <laughs> wherever she went through the day. See? I get it. I get it. 
parents are protective of your kids. You should be. Yeah, amen. All of you are. All of you are. Uh, you, you, want to, you want to make sure they hang out with the right people, not the wrong people. You're protective of them. You tell them to stay away from strangers and all those things. And, uh, you know, and, and that's exactly what it should be. But you, do you understand why you're so protective of them? Because you love them so much. You know why you're not protective of the church God gave you here? You know where this is going, don't you? You don't love it. I'm very protective of it. I'm protective of you. I'm too protective of you. I really am. I'm like a mother eagle that flutters her wings over the little chicken, you know. And, uh, you know, I am because I realize my responsibility to you. And, I, I, and I, I'm somewhat of a romantic in, in some things of my life, knowing the fact that uh, I want everybody to do right. I want everybody to be everything that you want it to be. I want it I'm in a romantic in the sense that the sense of right, you know. I want you to be right and do what's right. I want you to be everything that you want to be. But I know the reality of that is it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. I wish it would. Doesn't mean I don't want it. Doesn't mean I don't worry about you. Some of you keep me up at night. You know that? Not long. <laughs> a little bit. But I worry about you. I worry about you because of the fact that I see your potential. I worry about you because of the fact that you, uh, you know, you're not realizing your potential. And I realize and understand that, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, when you get to the point where you really become uh, what God wants you to be and you see the value uh, of what uh, you have. You know, sometimes, sometimes you've got to lose something before you really understand the value of it. You know that? And sometimes, you know, God's people, you know, we, we, we take things for granted. We always do. I mean, you go someplace, you get the Bible all the time, and after a while, when you get it all the time, and it's always good, I hope, and you get everything that you want, and you just kind of settle into that thing, and you think you deserve that. You expect that. And when you get to that point, then you start getting nitpicky about the little things, you see? And that's never a good thing to be. And I'll tell you why that is, because uh, when you realize what this place really is, you heard Larry up here a few minutes ago. You were there Thursday night when we talked about that. When you realize what God has given us here, not just you, given me too. When you realize what we have, let me tell you something. If it isn't worth protecting, then just shut it down and go do something else. Just that simple. But a spirit-filled child of God, a real Christian, there'll be a problem solver, not a problem causer. Just the way it works. It's an honor for a man to cease from strife. You bet it is. And uh, they, uh, they will always go, uh, always in any situation, seek to put an end to the strife and not uh, carry it on uh, and keep it going or add to it. And it happens all the time. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeases strife. And that's so true. Proverbs 26, verses 20 and 21, Where there no wood is, uh, there the fire goeth out. And so where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. You know what? We talk about the terms that it, well, we have something here and you know what's going to happen. It's going to grow legs and it's going to go everywhere. It's like a bug. Bugs go everywhere. And, you, and that's a cute little saying. Well, you know what? It's going to grow legs. You know how you keep it from growing legs? Step on the bug. <laughs> Squash that sucker. Making part of the linoleum. His legs ain't going anywhere. I don't care how many he's got. But, of course, that's how you deal with it. You stop it. 
you stop it. And people will always be in any situation, you know, that, uh, that they, they add fuel to it. Somebody has a problem with something, instead of them shutting it down, they have a problem too. So now they found somebody else with a problem and they add wood to the thing and off it goes. Twist 21 says, as coals are to, a, uh, to burning coals and wood to the fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And that's what happens. You just fuel it along. You don't put an end to it. Some people will uh, uh, inflame a situation to keep it going, and others will shut it down uh, because they understand the damage to the cause of Christ. You know, and I don't mean this wrong, but this church here today isn't about you or me. Amen. This church here today is about the cause of Christ. Amen. And sometimes we get our petty little things in the way of that, Amen. and the cause of Christ gets hurt. You need to grow up. You need to realize there's a bigger agenda here than me and my little issues or you and your little issues. It's the cause of Christ. And the cause of Christ is something that we have to protect. When I talk about protecting the church, I'm not protecting that nobody steals the chairs or nobody. I'm talking about protecting the mission and the ministry and the cause of Christ that gets hurt when some Christian gets caught up in something. You have the ability to shut it down and make it right. You throw fire, gasoline on it. That's what I'm talking about. You know, people are going to struggle with things. They always will. I don't know of a time in my life over the years that, that young Christians come up, they come to a Bible study, they hear something I say. I mean, you know how hard it is to have 150 people out there and you say something too and everybody gets the right meaning on it? Somebody's going to get it wrong. And I appreciate so many of you because you brought people to Bible study or maybe to church on Sunday. And I can get radical on Sunday morning. I can say things that, that, but I'm preaching to you. I can't help it if a visitor comes in. I'm glad you're here. But I'm not going to alter my whole message just for you when I got something I want to say to the body. And I expect when somebody says, well, I don't know if I really like that or not, then you, 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 you make it work for them. I had a lady one time who came to church here and her husband would never come to church. And she was talking to me one time and she said, I said, how's so-and-so doing? She says, oh, he's doing okay. I said, I sure wish he said, oh, he's not going to come to church. And, I, and she, she says, I, and I said, why is that? She says, well, he doesn't like you. <laughs> that long, prestigious line. And I said, I said, did you ever ask him? She said, oh, yeah. She says, I, 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 I pinned him down. On, I, I said, you want, every Sunday. Uh, and last Sunday, I think it was, or Tuesday before, she said, you want to go to church with me today? And he said, no, I don't want to go to church. And she says, why not? She said, well, I don't like Bob. I don't like what he says. And she says, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Maybe I won't go either. Let me ask you a question. Tell me what he says that's wrong. He didn't, said, he didn't say anything wrong. What he says is right. I just don't want to go. See, there's times that it doesn't matter. It isn't the person, what the person says. And sometimes you have to be the voice of reason with somebody like that. They get an attitude about something, you're the one that has to fix it. You have the wherewithal to fix it if you're spiritually mature. You ought to see those things. You ought to see somebody struggling with something. And you ought to pull them aside and say, are you okay? Well, yeah, well, this happened, or so-and-so said this to me, or you know what? Bob didn't shake my hand, and uh, you know, and, or this or that, and you know, something. And, and, and you know, you, you fix it. You fix it. You have that ability to. If you're spiritually minded and you're full of the Holy Ghost and you're saved and you have the Word of God dwelling in you, 
then you realize that you have the potential to solve any problem that comes up when God puts you into it. And you just simply say, oh, well, that's, you know what? That's not, that's not what he, that's not, that's not what he meant. Here's what he's trying to say. Here's what he's doing. And you've got to understand where he's coming from. He's dealing with all this. You just say, oh, yeah, I see it now. I get it. That's what you do. That's what you do. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes people are going to be hung up on some really stupid stuff. And it doesn't do any good for you to be as stupid as they are. You're going to be smarter than the problem. You're supposed to understand that your job as a leader in this church, as a mature Christian anywhere, is to solve strife. Not add fuel to it. Not cause problems with it. Bring an end to it. You know, there's a great value in lovingly, tenderly, compassionately holding people accountable. There really is. And I've seen times when an issue, you know, spread through a church and uh, in my years past, you know, and, and caused damage. And in every case, when I saw that, I thought to myself, if that would have been dealt with by one or two people who uh, had the ability to do it at the very beginning, it would have put an end to it. It would have never grown legs, so to speak. Many times the very people who could, could and should put an end to it are the very ones who inflame it uh, and, and the damage gets done. And they stay in church and other people leave. I've seen it all my life in ministry. I don't care. In any church, it's what you have. So he says there how important it is to put an end to strife. And it's an honor for somebody to do that. Now look at verse 4. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in uh, harvest and have nothing. Now, the application of this is obviously to the judgment seat of Christ. There's no question about that. Bible says in John chapter 9, verse 4, that work for the night is coming when no man can work. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, when it talks about the rapture, we've talked about this before, the rapture is likened to three parts of a harvest. We sing the song, sowing in the morning, sowing in the new time, bringing in the sheaves. Uh, you know, it's a thing where we understand that. God saved us for a purpose, for His purpose. And that purpose is to, uh, is to, to be established by counsel, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18. You know, uh, we're, 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 in a, we're a fighting a war. That warfare needs to be fought on, on good, solid advice, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18. You know, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, there's a great parable that's a great story. And it's the story of God sending labors into the vineyard. It's a really a great story. And again, uh, it's one of those things that when you put it together and you look at it, it really, it really gives you a lot of insight. He's working with a 12-hour day. He starts at 6 o'clock in the morning, and then he puts workers in. Uh, he talks about the, uh, you know, the, the 6 a.m., then he talks about the 3rd hour, the 6th hour, the ninth hour, and the 11th hour. And uh, throughout this 12-hour day, he's sending workers into the vineyard to work. And it's a beautiful picture, uh, an analogy of God's people uh, going into the ministry and doing the work of God once they get saved. And I got looking at it one time, and I thought to myself, you know what, that's, that, that's really interesting, because there's a reason why he gave all these hours here. There's a reason why everything is laid out uh, the way that it is through these, this 12-hour period. And then I got thinking, okay, we, gotta, we know the church age runs approximately 2,000 years. We got a 12-hour day here. I want to find out, based on the Bible, how many 
how many years in that 2,000 picture, because that's a picture of church history. I'm going to figure out how many, how many hours there are to each, uh, the years there are to each hour. So I divided 12 into 2,000, and I come out with basically about 166 years uh, per, um, uh, per time he talks about here when he sends them in. So if we start at 6 a.m. in the morning, that would be 33 A.D. The first workers go in. He says the third hour, he sends more workers in, putting a little formula that brings us up to around 500 A.D., beginning of the Dark Ages. Then he says the sixth hour, he sends more workers in. That would bring us up by our little formula here, around 1,000 A.D. Then he says the ninth hour, and uh, that would bring us up to about 1,500, using the little formula that we got here, right at the start of Reformation. And then the eleventh hour, the last workers go in. And when you use that little formula, which is a very accurate formula, if given based what's in the Bible, that means that the last workers go into the vineyard to do the work of God in 1837. You know where that puts us? We are the last, we are the very last part at the very end of the workday. We're right on the edge of the end of the workday because this workday ends with the coming of the Lord. So we're, we're privileged enough to be right on the end of that workday. And when you realize that, you realize that we have a job that we have to do. And uh, you, you, look at that, you, you look at the next verse and, and, and see how you establish your purpose and you, you, you put these verses together. He says in verse 5, Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, water in the Bible is a type of the a Bible. We know that. And here it's talking about deep water. Deep water. And, you know, in sports, and you hear it all the time, in football, baseball, probably any sports. I'm not really up on sports, but I, I'm sure it's, it's all the way up. They have what they call a depth chart. And a depth chart is the versatility of your players. You look at your football team. The depth chart is, I got these guys right here. What can they do? Who can do more than the other person? Who, through the depth of their ability to play football or sports, are they more versatile than somebody else that I want to put them in a place where they can cover more than one position or do whatever they got to do? That's a depth chart. And all sports have it. And, uh, you know, in Christianity, uh, in my church here, I follow the same concept. I have my own depth chart. Uh, the versatility of my people. We talked about it Thursday night. We talked about the ability to, uh, to be able to be, go anywhere. Larry talked about it this morning, and he talked about how that the guys worked together. And they, they never sat down. They never had one conversation before they went of what I'm going to do and what you're going to do and how we're going to dovetail it together. They just, God gave them in their hearts what they wanted to do. They went up there, and because of the way they're trained and the way that they're sensitive and the way they understand, those three people went up there and did a fabulous job dovetailing everything they did together that it looks like they spent the last six months of their life orchestrating that when the truth of the matter is they didn't spend 10 minutes doing it. You know why? Depth. 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 You get to the point. And you know, you hear it in preaching. You hear it in preaching. Um, we got guys that preach in this church. Uh, Bob preaches and Danny preaches and, and Bubba's preached before and Zach's preached before and, and the guys that preach up here, John does Bible study. When those guys preach, you walk away with six or seven sermons out of one sermon they gave you. There's other guys that will preach that you're just trying to figure out what they said. I've had guys that no longer go to this church that, 
that when they done preaching, I was wondering what they were saying. I don't think they knew what they were saying. There was nothing there. The real mark of a good preacher that has depth to them will be what you walk away. It's kind of like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. Water comes out of fire hydrant about 1,000 feet per second. Try to get a drink. It'll take your head off. It'll certainly take your lips off. Now, when guys preach with depth, it's like trying to get everything that's coming out of them because there's a depth to it. And that's what I want. And, you know, God brings those kind of people into your world. God brings those kind of people into your life, and that's what you want to build a church with. Well, I, I said the other night, and I really, uh, Lauren and Barb, I really thought about this afterwards, and I really apologize about this. You know, I talked about the young guys that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that are really dialed in here and really doing the work, man. And that a year ago, two years ago, they were out in the world maybe, and, but now they're in here, they're in the institute, but they're just going to town, they're Bible study, they're digging into their Bibles. And, uh, you know, I, I made a, a, a deal about that. And I talked about how that you want to reproduce yourself in that. And, uh, and I, I neglected to say the fact that uh, they're doing so well and they're doing so good because Lauren and Barb have taken them under their wing and just and then, and then working with them and teaching them the Bible, having them over their house, sitting down with them with the Word of God. Now, Barb and Lauren and I, we go back, what, about 25 years, somewhere like that? Met you up in Burlington, Iowa, when I was up there preaching at Graber, Graber's, Goober's Church or whatever his name was. Graber, 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 yeah. And that's where I met them. And uh, there's no churches up there. When we started this church and we got hooked back into it, and uh, we got, I don't even know how we got hooked back up again. I don't even remember how we did it. Oh, through Larry, yeah, Larry. Larry's a, causes a lot of problems, doesn't he? <laughs> We got hooked back up again. They came down a couple times, see what God was doing here. They have a desire to do and work with the ministry, and they do a good job. You know what? He, 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 he retired early up there, left his family, came down here, joined this church, and you know what God does? He, he bought into this place. He realized what we were doing. He says, I want to be part of this, and now those young guys are where they're at and what they're doing. Not because of me. Not because of me. I just do what I get paid to do. Get up here and lie to you for an hour and a half. It's because people like them, people like you, are investing your life. You believe what we're doing here is the right thing. You believe the Bible we have and what we teach is the way to do it. And now you are taking what I'm giving to you and you're investing it in the lives of others. You're doing what I would do, but I can't do because I'm only one person. And now God, as scary as this is, has replicated me into what you're doing. And off we go. You're doing the same thing up at Lincoln. Where's my little girl at? You're doing the same thing up at Lincoln. And when you guys get down here, Katie bar the door, man. It'll be, I don't know who Katie is, but she's going to bar the door. Off we go. So many of you are doing that. So many of you are coming to the point where you're seeing it. And you know what? There's a depth to you. You preached yesterday, there was a depth there. Everybody saw it. I was amazed at it. Everybody did it. Every, everybody who's done it, there's a depth. You know why? Because you're learning the Bible. You're getting it. You're not getting just a bunch of fruff stuff that doesn't mean anything. You're getting and building some depth in your life. And it shows. And it shows. It shows. And I look at my depth chart. I, I would feel very good just about what all of you are dumping you someplace out there if God wanted to use you and just put you there knowing you'd get the job done. You know why? There's a depth to you. 
There's a depth to you. And the real mark of a Christian will be the depth of his or her life. Most are very superficial. Most are very, uh, no depth to them at all. You know, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, is one of, I think, one of the greatest expository verses anywhere in the Bible. And it says in verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that she might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, in life, physical life, there's three dimensions. There's three dimensions. And uh, uh, all things that you look at, everything we're around has three dimensions to it. It'll have a breadth, it'll have a length, and it'll have a height. Those are the three fundamental of physics of a three-dimensional world. Uh, a two-dimensional world is no good. A one-dimensional world is no good. In life, the world, and everything that we do, there's three dimensions to it. We talk about a spiritual fourth dimension. You're watching on TV. That's the paranormal crowd. That's the ghost hunters. They're looking for that fourth dimension where your dead Aunt Edna's at and your Uncle Fred, and you can contact them. So they go into houses. They set up their cameras. They get their little thermometers to, to measure the, the, the cold, how cold it gets. And they, they do all that stuff, and they're, they're, they're looking into that, believing there is a fourth dimension. Well, in the physical life, there is a fourth dimension, but it's demonic, so you want to stay out of it. Aunt Edna is not there. But in Christianity, basic fundamental Christianity, there's also three dimensions. When we talk about the breath, we're talking about the mercy of God. The breath is how much God loves you, how wide His mercy is. When we talk about the length of the third dimension, we're talking about the longevity of God, how God has been around forever. When we talk about the height of God, we're talking about God being bigger than your problems, that He can see over what you can't see and see the end route, so you trust Him. Those are, in Christianity, those are the three fundamental spiritual dimensions of a relationship with God. Unfortunately, most of God's people never even get those three down. But if you look at our passage here, there's a fourth dimension spiritually, and it's depth. The depth of God. Most God's people never even get anywhere near this one. The depth of God he talks about is to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Understanding things about God that knowledge in itself of this world can never give you. You have to get out of the third dimension. You have to get to a fourth spiritual dimension that is just you and God. And there you find, uh, you find the love of Christ which passes knowledge. You might be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness of God is you having everything that God is at your fingertips. You looking at that Bible and seeing it as God sees it. You looking at every circumstance in life and seeing and understanding as God sees it. You look at a situation like we talked about where somebody has a problem and you see your job is to solve it, not cause it. The fullness of God in your life is the depth. Getting to the point in your life where there's depth to you. That in this church... You're on the top of the list of the depth chart. That God can look down and say, yeah, we got a group up in Washington. We got a group over here. We got a group over here. We got somebody over here. 
and he can just drop you wherever he wants you to go knowing that you will get the job done. You know why? There's depth to you. There's depth to you. And then he says this, the last part of verse 5. He says, Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, the bottom line is this. It doesn't do you any good to have the right Bible. It doesn't do you any good to have the knowledge of God's Word if you can't draw on it when you need it. I love the word, draw it out. Using the depth of God's Word to deal with any issue in your own life first and then in the lives of others. It's just that simple. There's people in every church that's been in the church for 20 years, 30 years. I've seen them, you've seen them, we've all seen them. And you know what? They're no more deeper now in the Word of God than the day they walked into that church. And when they have issues that come up in their life and problems come up in their life, they have nothing to draw on. There's no depth to them. There's nothing to get in their bucket when they bring it up. Absolutely nothing. They have nothing to draw on. Providing you with the ability to live in a spiritual state of the fourth dimension. We talk about our people ministry. And, you know, I started that a number of, a couple of years ago. I, I, I was an open end. Anybody could come. It wasn't something that just a few people got in. I wanted anybody who wanted to be part of that uh, because I had one goal in mind. One goal in mind. I'd see who show up, see who stayed with it, see who came. And the word for me, the byword, the watchword for me was one word, depth. Taking the word of God and the things of God with everything else that we do and building a depth in your life. Giving you the ability to use the depth of God's Word to deal with any issue in your life, and like I said, with somebody else. Providing you with the ability to live in a spiritual state of that fourth dimension of the fullness and the knowledge of God. That everything you see, everything that you do. I was sneaking around last night and I listened to your devotion. Depth. Depth. Except some of the examples you used to him. Other than that, it was depth. Nobody knows this, but Sean, I was, I was over there listening to yours. I just stayed out of earshot. Didn't I? I don't like me. It seems like if you're doing a devotion and I come in and sit down, you just all fall apart like I'm <coughs> going to grade you or something. I just like to listen. Depth. Song of Solomon, depth. The thing that you do, depth. You guys work with people, guys that come in with struggle. You guys work with gals that come in. You know why you work with them? Depth. I don't get any calls anymore from you guys that work with people, guys and gals. I don't get anybody calls anymore saying, what do I should do with this? I get calls now saying, this is what I did. Do you know how refreshing that is to me? I don't even tell you when you're wrong. I'm so happy. (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Drawing on that fullness when you need to. And I love the word, draw it out. I just love that. You know, in life, I hope you all have one of these. It's called a savings account. And in banking, you know, in a savings account, you, uh, you save money. You work for a living. You get a check and you buy your stuff and you try to save a little money. And you put it into a savings account. And uh, you take it every week or they take it out maybe now they take it out uh, for you. And uh, you, you get a little savings account where you build up a little, a little reservoir of money. 
and you build up your savings account, uh, uh, and so you can cover uh, unexpected things in life. Sometimes your car will break down, and, and uh, you know, sometimes the dishwasher will go out. Sometimes you'll have unexpected medical bills, or vet bills. If you got dogs, you're going to better save some money for that. And, uh, and, uh, or something goes wrong with the house, you know, it's not covered. And then you can draw off of what you have put uh, in the bank on, on your account. And, uh, you know, uh, Christians, Christianity is the same principle. I, I walk into my bank, a bank here in Raytown. I walk into my bank and I said, and they're always very nice. Uh, can I help you? Mr. Can I help you? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I got a little problem. You know, my car, my engine blew up and, you know, uh, I got to get it fixed because, you know, you need a car. And I took it over to the mechanic and um, they say it's going to cost four, four, about $1,400 to get it fixed and everything. And I, I just need to, uh, uh, so I need to get $1,400 from the bank here. Uh, she said, well, no problem, Mr. Alexander. We'd be glad to help you. Uh, well, you have your account number? And I said, yeah, yeah, here it is. And she looks it all up, and then she says, hmm. She says, um, well, you know, your account shows that you only have $6.27. I said, yeah, I know, I know. Isn't that something? I know. <laughs> I said, but uh, come on, this is a bank. you got all kinds of money back there. <laughs> In that big old safe. You think you got back there pop bottles? Come on, man. You got all kinds of money back there. She says, I know, but, but you don't have any money on your account. I said, well, you know what? So-and-so was here, and I watched her peel off $20 bills, the whole stack of him. I mean, come on. I just need $1,400. She said, well, he had money on his account, so we gave him his money. <laughs> Mr. Alexander, uh, you, don't, you don't have anything on your account. I don't know what you did with your money. and It's your business, but, and, you know, you need $1,400. You only got $6. I can get you the $6 if you want, but you don't have any money on your account. I can't give you the $1,400. And I said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Give me the manager. I want to talk to somebody over your pay grade. I want to, I want to tell you, this is the bank. You have all kinds of money. I have a need. And she says, we don't need the manager. I am going to tell you, you cannot get any more money than $6.35 because whatever you did with your money, you did not put anything on your account. You know why you have problems in your life and you can't get the answers to them? Because all your life you've been spending your time someplace else and you've got nothing on the account. Thy word I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. With all your young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. For you and me as a Christian, your bank account is your heart. And you put the word of God through principles into your life. You put them on your three by five cards. You learn it. You work with people. God gives you a depth into your life. You put the principles on your account. And when something unexpected comes up in your spiritual life, you're sick. A death in the family. You lose your job. You know, you have trouble with your kids. You know, life's issues. Now the principles that he would put on the account is what you draw off of. God's people think that they just have a problem and God's going to come down and, and, and throw them a life preserver. You know, you get in all the trouble you want and then God will come down and bail you out. That's the way most parents raise their kids, so most people think God does the same thing. I got news for you. He doesn't do it that way. I used to work at a factory. I got to tie my shoe. I can't bend down. I'm going to trip over this. I used to work at a factory. 
It was pretty tight. You know, I'm tight, real that tight. Now my blood's going to my foot. I used to work at a factory, the Hoover Company. If your vacuum cleaner gave up on you day after you bought it, thank you, buddy, it's because I probably put it together. But anyway, I was in the parts department, and I drove a fork truck, and we had this, we had these storage areas that had long corridors that went maybe for three or 400 yards. And on sides of them were bins with all the parts that you need for washers, you know, belts, pulleys, all the little stuff, caster, rollers, all that stuff, parts, everything part you need. And I was in charge of that, and I, I'd walk down there, and when you had a bad day, and you just wanted to, you know how you get a bad day, and you just want to destroy something, you just want to tear something up? I thought to myself what it would be like to just vent my frustration, to walk down that 300-yard thing and just rip everything down and tuck, spill stuff over, 55-gallon drums of casters all over the place. Just walk down that aisle pushing boxes over. Ha, 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 I hate this job. You know, putting it all down there, pushing it. Ah, I'll show the Hoover Company, throwing it all down, all the way down the end of that thing. And they're saying, man, I feel a lot better. Then turn around and realize you just got to walk through the mess you just made to get out. You know what? Life's a lot like that for you and me. We make the messes and then we turn around and we think God's going God's to clean up the mess. No, 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 not at all. No, no. When problems come into your life and my life, the only way we get to deal with them is what you're going to draw on with what you put in here. Now, that's why, and I don't mean this wrong, because we're here for this, and we'll always be here for this. I said this Thursday night. That's why some of you will always need somebody in your life to help you with your problems. And I'm for, right now, I'm all for it. But I said it Thursday night, there had to come a time in your life where you stand on your own two feet and help somebody else. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where you're going to have to come to the point where you realize that someday you're going to have to stand on your own two feet and you're going to have to be able to solve your own problems. And yet I've known Christians been saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Every time I, they get a hangnail, they're calling somebody to help them. Every time they got an issue with this or that, they're calling somebody to help them. And we're here to help. And I'm not saying don't call. I'm just saying, why in the world don't you get some stuff on the account that you can draw off of yourself? Why don't you get some depth to you? Why don't you get some things in your life that you build into your life that are solid, rock solid, that you take the time to, to, to put the things on the account of your heart that you can bank on when things go down. And then you just draw off of what you put in there, the depth. The depth of how deep you go when it comes to the things of the Word of God. Now, I didn't say any of that, so you won't call me or when we put somebody to work with you. That's what I do. That's what we do here. But our goal is limited. We don't want to do it forever. We want you to come to the place where you get the victory over it. And I've watched so many of you. I've watched some of you that come in, you didn't know anything about the Bible. Now you're teaching the Bible. You're using the Bible. You're doing things. But you're on the depth chart. And it all comes down to what you do with it. Unfortunately, most people know absolutely nothing about the Bible, God's people, so they fall apart when tough times come. They really do. Nothing to draw from, can't draw from the depth of the water of the Word of God. All you got in your life is a Christian mud puddle. That's all you got. About a half an inch deep in dirty, muddy water. And you can't sustain yourself with that. It's the depth of your life with God. It's the basics for which you draw from in life. I cannot build you tall. I cannot build you tall for God. I cannot build you tall for God. 
without first building you deep for God. Because the higher you go, the deeper foundation you got to hold to hold you up. I'm sick and tired of Christians that are 20 feet tall with a six-inch foundation that are top-heavy and just fall over. The thing that will anchor you as God's child and anchor you as a soldier of Jesus Christ is not just how high you go, but how deep you go and adjacent to how high you go. Depth of your life. So you see how Proverbs is such an incredible book in a practical way. We kind of ran the whole gamut this morning from the, from the doctrinal aspect of the second coming right into the great practical things of solving problems that come up in our lives and being a problem solver instead of a problem causer, looking all because of the fact that we want to protect the cause of Christ with what God has called us to do. It's like anything else. If it just isn't worth protecting, then it isn't worth anything. If your children aren't worth protecting, then who cares? It comes back down to the fact that if it's valuable, if it's something that means something to you, then you have to take care of it. And that would start first with the Bible that God has given you, drawing off of it for the depth of your life. Well, we'll hold up there. Be back tonight. We're going to get things set up here very quickly. If you can help me, we'll get everything done we need to do. There's some more white chairs up there that need to come down. And uh, if you'll just jump in here with me and help me get all that done, we'll get it done very quickly. Don't forget the, the, uh, the raffle back here and for the uh, mission if you want to go tonight. But be here early.